discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we have one of my super cool, super brilliant friends and comrades on the show, Tyler Shipley. He wrote the book Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, which is just absolutely fantastic, packed, packed full of info. I would recommend this to everyone. And today we're going to be busting that myth that Canada is just a peacekeeping force in the world, that we are not the aggressors, we are not the imperialists, uh, because as Tyler's book very aptly shows, that is so far from being true. There are actually times in, you know, regime change operations and just imperialist aggressive wars where Canada is even more the aggressor than the United States, which... I'm not sure that people know about, but people should know about it. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation. Before we dive into it, I want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts to our new patrons this month. Thank you to Isaiah, TJ, Hamza, and Micah or Mika for your very generous donations. If you like what we do here, if you get something from it and you want us to keep making more, please consider supporting us monthly on Patreon at patreon.com slash veganvanguard. You can also give us a one-time tip or donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com. And or please share this episode to amplify the message and please give us those ratings and reviews on iTunes. I love reading them. Thank you so much to everyone who has given us five stars and written a review. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Tyler Shipley. Shipley. Um, the, the, book, uh, the book is called Canada in the World, and um, you know, it's an attempt to, I guess, situate Canada within the story of colonial and imperial powers in the world. So many people in Canada don't understand uh, or don't want to understand that Canada is, um, you know, every bit a colonial and imperial power the way the United States is you know, albeit on a smaller scale and with some minor different details. But I think that for a really long time, this has been something that bothered me. And um, and then as I sort of started doing the academic work to back it up, it was like I, I became more and more, I, I just felt more and more like I needed to articulate in detail the the this part of Canada's history. So um, so yeah, my, my PhD, which I did at York University, kind of gradually um, moved in that direction and, and was critical of Canada with respect to uh, one particular case. And then as I moved into my teaching career, I just found myself drawn to uh, this, this work on Canada and kind of trying to, 
to pull together the overall picture. Uh, and so that brought me here to the vegan vanguard. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I recently read your book and was just floored by it. Uh, it was exactly the kind of book that I wanted to read. Um, because uh, I just get this all the time, you know, from fr family or, or friends or whatever, that they think that Canada's role in the world is just to be peacekeepers or just to be this, this benevolent force and that it's not really us that's doing this stuff. It's the US and whatnot. So I just thought it was such a powerful book. I definitely recommend this to everyone. I will link it in the description box below so everyone can check it out. Um, but I guess to begin, could you tell us a bit about your political journey? And I guess you kind of touched on just what inspired you to write the book. But, you know, just if, if you want to say anything more about the project itself. Yeah, I mean, I think I was always, I've always been irritated, like just on a visceral level, irritated by Canadian exceptionalism, you know, this kind of this mythology that Canada is so great and Canadians are so nice. And I mean, I remember being taught that stuff like in yeah. school, in high school, you know, and, and it always irritated me, but then sort of gradually as I kind of started getting more, I guess, politically active and aware. And I started reading, you know, Adbusters and rabble.ca and all these, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of signposts of leftist youth. Um, you know, I started getting more of the pieces. I started getting more of the little bits like, oh, there's a coup in Haiti and Canada was involved. That's that's weird. And, you know, all these little bits and pieces kind of started filtering through. And and so I gradually started doing this work. And, um, you know, I think I think for me, it's important to sort of work in the location where you are. You know, I'm I grew up here. I grew up on the prairies like, um, you know, I, I grew up right on the site of, you know, a horrific colonial uh, attack that was important in the construction of Canada. And my dad was born in a, in a town um, that was built literally immediately after Indigenous people, Cree people, had been dispossessed of their land. It's just the legacy of colonialism and imperialism in Canada, it's so immediate. And the fact that it's been erased is really, it's really... Um, it's sort of an incredible feat of ideology. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, I think this work has been about trying to uh, bring this stuff back into focus for people um, and, and kind of refocusing our energies, if we're located here in Canada, on the problems right here. Never mind. Well, you can care about what the United States is doing. It's bad, too. Um, but let's also, you know, take seriously the problems right here in, in Canada. So that's, I guess, kind of generally where the book comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And then your political journey, like you said, you kind of were always irritated by by Canadian exceptionalism. But I guess, you know, uh, how did you kind of develop uh, more of kind of a, a leftist socialist kind of a, a politic? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it happens so gradually and generally, or at least in my case, it did. You know, I grew up in a sort of middle class, lower middle class household. I didn't I didn't really think much of the fact that my dad and mom both were poor when they were kids and that we now had this kind of middle class life. And I didn't really confront or think about my class position. I guess that's probably somewhat normal when you're a kid. You just live. You just live in what you were living in. But as I got older, I started to kind of understand that my family was pretty working class. My dad was the seventh of ten kids in rural Manitoba, and he was the only one really... Um, 
I mean, I, you know, there's probably a couple of others that sort of did, but he was really one of the few that, that attained a certain level of middle-class comfort. And I was always conscious of that whenever we would see uh, our family. So I, th- I guess I started thinking about class sort of in, in those moments. Um, and then it wasn't until later when I went to university that I kind of started to connect some of the dots. And, you know, I, I'm sure uh, other people roughly my age probably had some similar, you know, moments. There's Chomsky, you know, yeah. always Chomsky <laughs> is really important. You yeah. read your first Chomsky and it's, you know, it's like your first puff. <laughs> and um, and, I re- and I read Howard Zinn, of course, you know, um, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. I remember reading it, actually. I, re- I remember being in my bed um, in my parents' house, in my bedroom as a teenager, reading the first chapter of that book and being blown away. I mean, just ab- absolutely blown away. And part of the power of Howard Zinn's book was that he used the words of the people themselves, like that first chapter, he uses the diaries of Christopher Columbus. And it was really, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but it was like extremely myth busting for me. And I think that kind of started me on this kind of very long, arduous path to, um, you know, a a sort of left political uh, life, which I've, you know, I think it's safe to say now at this stage of my life that I'm, I'm committed. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm not going to do some weird Why I you know, left conservative the left. turn yeah. at some point. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. So uh, in the book, you argue that our genocidal relationship with indigenous peoples at home set the stage for all of our foreign engagements. So could you talk about how the atrocities that Canada has committed and continues to commit on indigenous peoples are connected to Canadian imperialism? Yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, Probably the most significant contribution that I make in the book um, is is around that issue. I think for the most part, you know, the book is is based largely on secondary sources. It's not a lot of original digging that I did, you know, a couple of exceptions. But for the most part, I'm rooted in secondary sources. I'm pulling things together. Um, but I think the one thing that I've tried to do in this book that oddly I haven't seen often enough, certainly from, you know, in, in the settler left in Canada, um, was to just explicitly connect the roots of what Canada is, what the state was built to do, and what it does currently. Um, this didn't seem like a strange sort of connecting of the dots to me. It seems sort of obvious to me that, you know, the state, the Canadian state was built 150-ish years ago with the express purpose of conquering uh, and colonizing this land and the people who inhabited it. Um, And that was, you know, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't oblique. This was very explicit. Um, You know, the quotes that I'm sure many of us have seen by now, the quotes from people like Johnny MacDonald, but not just him, um, from the time, they make it extremely explicit that this is a, that this is a conquest that they view um, the indigenous nations as foreign powers um, and that they're engaged with these foreign powers with the intent of um, destroying them, um, sidelining them, erasing them. At, you know, there's a some official that says something about that there be no memory of them uh, left in the world. I mean, there's there's it's very clear. And so for me, you know, it's a it's a strange sleight of hand that the Canadian state has done over the last 150 years where they've transformed what was foreign policy 
a policy directed at foreign nations, indigenous nations, and they've they've made it into this sort of domestic issue, like, oh, this is just an internal Canadian problem. Um, and I don't accept that. I think it's a I think it's the formative case of foreign policy, um, the way that Canada engages with these foreign nations, theft, violence, deception, deceit, uh, you know, ultimately genocide. And so, so to me, I just sort of say, okay, well, that's where the Canadian state has its roots. I mean, even right down to confederation itself, the moment where the Canadian state uh, kind of becomes what it currently is, that moment is specifically about conquering the West. Uh, it's unambiguous. Johnny MacDonald convenes this sort of attempt to bring the Canadian provinces together because there is urgency in their mind to building a railroad and conquering the West and pushing the indigenous people out and getting that land before the Americans did. I mean, that's where the, that's where the urgency comes in. It's right after the Civil War in the U.S. Uh, which, and, you know, there's all this sort of territory that both Canada and the United States are coveting, indigenous territory. So Confederation is explicitly about that. So for me, it's a logical thing to say, well, if that's where the Canadian state begins and that's what's its roots, then that's going to have some impact on the rest of Canadian foreign policy. The same people who develop Canada's colonial policy in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s are the same people who then start developing Canada's foreign policy with respect to South Africa in the Boer War or, you know, Latin America in the 1900s and 1910s and 1920s. And that bleeds into the invasion of El Salvador in the 1930s and then supporting fascism in the 40s. I mean, it it all, you know, is is come. It's all emanating from the same place. So with that in mind, I, I sort of I identified two elements of colonialism that I thought, you know, were, were at the center of it. And there's obviously more. It's obviously an oversimplification at some level, but I, I distill it into um, what I called settler capitalism and the colonial imagination. Um, settler capitalism being, you know, the, the logic of conquering land, uh, claiming it and converting it into capitalist you know, places of capitalist social relations uh, and capitalist exploitation, that and the colonial imagination, the idea, the ideological framework of white supremacy, that white people are providentially destined uh, to conquer this land and any land, really, to be the rulers of the world. And those two things, of course, operate at the heart of colonialism. But what I found and I found this even more than I expected when I started doing the work. Like I knew I would find it, but I found it far more um, completely in Canadian foreign policy that those two things are there. One or the other or both of those two dynamics, you know, establishing or maintaining capitalist social relations and and the, the premise of white supremacy, the colonial imagination of supremacy, those things are there in almost every single case. I struggled to find cases where it wasn't there. So yeah, that's, I think, sort of the central argument that holds the book together. Um, and I think that's sort of one of the contributions I hope the book makes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such an important contribution. And as you said, it makes perfect sense. And you bring up a lot of really interesting connections as well. You know, the fact that all of our imperial sol soldiers, wherever they are in the world, they call it, you know, quote unquote, Indian country. 
Um, and then some really interesting connections you brought up about how indigenous people mined the, the uranium for the bombs that were dropped on Japan <laughs> and things like that. Um, and yeah, just all these really, really interesting connections between what we're doing to indigenous people and then what we're doing abroad. So I just thought that was, yeah, a, a definitely very important contribution of the book. Um, and also, but I guess and also maybe, too, a lot oh, of the same... Oh, no, I was just going to say also, too, like, sometimes even the same, like, personnel, like, even the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you kind of follow, if it's like, if you walk slowly through the history, it's like, okay, you got Sam Steele, you know, who's this celebrated, which is absurd, but the celebrated Northwest Mounted Police officer, right? Central figure in the conquest of the indigenous nations of the prairies. And then guess what? Sam Steele shows up in South Africa in, in the Boer War, where he... Not only does he fight with the British in the Boer War against the uh, the, the Boer or Afrikaner settlers, but after the war, he plays a really central role in the construction of concentration camps for British prisoners who are Boer, but also Black, also Indigenous South Africans, um, you know, from a number of different nations, which quickly become, I mean, the basis really for the apartheid system in South Africa. So, you know, here you have this guy, Canadian, like a, an actual person whose life and work spans one moment of colonialism and then another, you know, I think you'd call it imperialism, but the two things. And you find that, like you find these individuals who are constructing colonial policy here and then imperial policy somewhere else over there. So, yeah, the overlap is, it's so much more, uh, it's so much deeper than I even realized. I sort of expected it to be a kind of theoretical thing, and it turned out to be much more explicit and material and direct. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's definitely something that, I mean, I, again, as I was reading it, I was like, I shouldn't be surprised, but this is just really, really involved, you know? Um, but uh, but yeah, so I guess moving on, um, you know, Canada's armed forces here are really largely perceived to be quote unquote peacekeepers. That's just what I hear from everyone. Um, but what has Canadian peacekeeping actually involved internationally? And just more broadly, I mean, what does it mean to be a peacekeeper in the context of imperialist aggression? Right. I just find that yeah. that whole concept really funny. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I, I mean, what's, I think really interesting is that the peacekeeping language starts also really early. Um, I can't remember where I first found it, but I know that as early as, you know, um, well, as early as Garnet Wolseley's march in 1870 to destroy um, the Red River resistance, the, the Métis uprising, you know, whatever term we want to use. But, you know, when the Métis asserted their sovereignty at, at Red River and British soldiers were sent, I mean, they called it a mission of peace in 1870. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they called the the Korean War um, was technically the first peacekeeping mission. So, yeah, I mean, rhetorically, that that stuff has just always been mobilized. But I think, you know, one of the things that I I actually do this in my teaching, and I'm not sure if I did it in the book, but in my classes when I teach the sort of the peacekeeping stuff, you know, I'll talk to my students about the fact that on the surface, peacekeeping seems benevolent and fine. And, you know, at at worst, it's like, you know, maybe a bit clumsy, but trying their best kind kind of a thing. But what I always say to my students is like, why... 
you know, why do we think of peacekeeping as, why does peacekeeping always end up having this framework of like saving people, you know, of going to some place and saving them instead of being about solidarity? Like, why is, why is it not solidarity? It never has that feeling. It always has the feeling of saving. Um, mm. And I mean, I think the answer to that question is because it is colonialism, it's imperialism, and it always has been. So its true colors come through pretty clearly. And yeah, I mean, I did spend a lot of time in the book on peacekeeping, right? Because it is so central to the Canadian mythology. Um, And it's bad. I mean, it's just bad. It's like every case, Mm -hmm. you know, you just pull apart the cases and... And there, there's a range of different types of bad, you know? I mean, there's the Suez crisis, since, since everyone's focused on the Suez Canal these days. Yeah. Um, you know? Um, but, you know, there's the Suez crisis, which, which you know, is, is um, a case of Canada frames it as though it's this great, um, you know, sort of keeping the peace between all these different powers. But really, it's about keeping the peace between the Western powers. Um, like, Egypt gets screwed. But Canada doesn't care about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Nasser like openly says, this is not okay with us. This is not what we want. Uh, how dare Canada, you know, propose this and, and we don't want Canadians here. Get the hell out. You know, at some point, the Canadian prime minister is offended that Nasser would ask the Canadians to leave. Um, so, you know, the Suez crisis is a good example where it's like Canada plays this peacekeeping role, but only to keep peace between... Uh, the European powers and the United States, and to a certain extent Israel, but with no regard for for Egypt. There's that colonial, that old colonial logic sort of coming through. But you know, mm-hmm. most cases are far worse than that. You know, in in some ways, that's the least sort of offensive mode that Canada takes. Some of them are really just downright horrific. You know, I mean, I mentioned the Korean War, which somehow gets plucked into peacekeeping, even though it's a horrific aggressive war um one that sticks out for me is the congo um and i think part of the reason that one sticks out is because there's this heritage minute and i actually spend a little bit of time in the book on the heritage minutes right because they're so central to our myth making machine and there's this heritage minute about the congo where and i'll sort of i'll i'll set it up in the way that it's set up this is not sort of how i view it but they frame it as this frenzied crazy african man scary scary man shouting screaming um it's almost cartoonish he s- slaps a nun you know he's yelling on the phone it's all he just portrayed in this cartoonish sort of villain kind of way uh and then the the this vignette ends with a canadian peacekeeper uh, you know, moving in on this guy, they they hold him at gunpoint and very rational, calm Canadian peacekeeper says, you know, we have you under arrest, your building is surrounded, drop your weapon. And it's supposed to be this great, you know, wow, Canada so rational and reasonable and saving people, <laughs> you know, save that nun, you know, that sweet <laughs> nun was saved, you know, it's, it's just really, I mean, it's offensive and racist. Yeah. But that's not even the worst part of it. The worst part of it is that it's a, a insane misrepresentation of what Canada actually did in the Congo, um, which, you know, the short form of what Canada actually did in the Congo is that uh, Canadian soldiers went to the Congo at the request of uh, Patrice Lumumba, the prime minister, socialist, um, 
who asked for help because there was a right-wing sort of rebellion um, that had been supported by Belgium to try to take back the country, basically, for Belgian capital. Canadian peacekeepers went. Um, they were super racist. They caused a ton of incidents. They had to be explicitly ordered to stop using racial slurs. They had to be specifically ordered to stop going to particular bars and brothels in the capital city because they were starting fights there. Um, the Canadian press wrote about this whole incident as though, well, actually not as though, they literally claimed that Congolese people were cannibals and that they were threatening to eat Canadians, which obviously I need not say is false. Um, and then I think the worst part of it is that Canada basically sided with the right-wing rebels, despite having been invited to the Congo by its elected prime minister to help maintain the peaceful order, um, a Canadian peacekeeper had befriended the leader of the right-wing faction and actually gave him, and this, is, this, by the way, was Joseph Mobutu, who ends up being the dictator of the Congo for 30 years, uh, gave mm -hmm. Mobutu Lumumba's location and said, here, you should go there and get him. Uh, and they did, mm -hmm. and he was assassinated, and thus ended you know, this really uh, hopeful moment in Congolese history. They finally had achieved independence uh, and voted for this socialist and wanted to try, you know, to reclaim some sovereignty and dignity. And, and of course, Canada plays the central role in undermining that and then calls it a peacekeeping mission and makes a heritage minute about how gallant it was. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the peacekeeping stuff is pretty messed up and we haven't even, you know, gotten into Somalia, which, you know, if you like, I could yeah. talk a bit about that too, but uh, horrible stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, definitely, um, definitely say something about the Somalia affair, because that's, you know, one of the, probably the worst things that we've done <laughs> globally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just absolutely shameful, right? It's so, it's so wild how any of this is, you know, pegged as peacekeeping right especially korea as well just this just completely scorched earth policy how was the peace kept there you know yeah well i mean the craziest statistic or i guess tidbit that i know about the korean war is that um they bombed north korea so heavily that they ran out of targets um they had blown up every building that was larger than or higher than one story off the ground um, and so pilots would be sent on these bombing sorties into North Korea. And w for lack of targets, they would just drop bombs on individual people. There's this case of a person on a bicycle and the pilot just drops a bomb on this guy on a bike because there's nothing else to bomb. They devastated the country so much. They dropped more tonnage of bombs on North Korea in the Korean War than was used in the entirety of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's It's insane. U.S. Yeah. Uh, General yeah. uh, MacArthur, who was, you know, had been put in, in charge of Japan. And and like this is not a nice, peaceful man. This is a this is a man of violence. Even he at one point says, like, what's going on in Korea is messed up. Like, this is really, really un, like not cool. My stomach turned. And he says something about his stomach turned at the violence in Korea. And yet we called it peacekeeping. So it's really, yeah, it's, it's so duplicitous. And I think, you know, to, I guess, quickly mention the Somalia thing, um, you know, Somalia is such an interesting case because it happens in the 1990s uh, at the height, I think, of 
the sort of Canadian mythology of peacekeeping. A lot of the peacekeeping missions themselves happen in the 60s, 70s, and a little bit in the 80s, but the 90s is when the story of peacekeeping seems to really, really take hold uh, in kind of Canadian popular consciousness. And so Somalia should have been the end of that because, of course, I mean, I'm sure most people know, but anyone that doesn't know what, you know, the short version of what happened is that Canadian peacekeepers went to Somalia um, and were bored because they didn't actually run into any real conflict. Um, So they started picking on uh, kids who were allegedly stealing from their camp. Um, These were kids who were hungry, you know, were at times just stealing food and water. Um, The Canadian soldiers set a trap of food and water for some of these Somali youths who then eventually did enter the camp to take the food and water. Uh, And then the Canadians used that as a pretext to attack them. And in in one case, they captured a 16-year-old and collectively tortured him and killed him. Um, And it's just gruesome and horrific. Uh, Mm. And this became known. This became a news story. It's called the Somalia Affair because because they failed to hide it. They usually cover these things up, but they failed to cover this one up. So, like, that should have been the end of the myth of peacekeeping. Something that horrible. Um, And yet, the peacekeeping myth persisted because of, I would argue, because of the colonial imagination. Actually, I take this argument, shouldn't claim it. It's an argument made by Shireen Razak, uh, who wrote a book about the Somalia affair in particular. And, you know, she basically says, and I fully agree with this, that... um, Canadians were so convinced of their inherent innocence and goodness that they simply couldn't allow the possibility uh, that that this incident would interrupt that. So instead, there there is a kind of myth or narrative constructed around the Somalia affair where the real evil is Somalia. The real evil is this place. It's so hot. It's so dusty. It's so strange. Everyone is so weird. No one understands us. No one appreciates us. And that's the big one. That's the one I would really underline is that no one appreciates us. There is this recurring theme in the testimonies of the Canadian peacekeepers that they were hurt and offended and upset by the fact that Somalis didn't seem to want them there and didn't appreciate what they were doing. Um, I mean, some people would say maybe... Maybe you shouldn't be there then. Maybe maybe yeah. you misunderstand the situation here. Yeah. But instead, of course, you know the way they took it was these ungrateful uh, Somalis. You know they don't they don't understand. They're less civilized. You know we're a civilized nation. We're coming here to save them, and they don't even appreciate it. Uh, you know they called it Indian country. Same kind of narratives that were used are still used actually with respect to indigenous people here. Um, Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so the story ends up being that these these unfortunate peacekeepers got caught up in this horrible thing because Somalia was such a bad place and no one appreciated them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, that says it speaks volumes about the way that colonial imagination plays out. And and it does elsewhere, too, as I'm sure we'll talk about. You know, Afghanistan is a good example of, an, of that similar thing elsewhere. So, I mean, it really it runs deep, I think. 
Yeah, no, it runs very, very deep. Um, and then in that case as well, it was also like, oh, well, it was just these bad apples <laughs> that did this. And, uh, you know, it's not representative of Canada or the Canadian forces. Meanwhile, as you say, you know, uh, up to 80 people actually participated in torturing and actually like raping, like sodomizing this child and then took photos and everything is just absolutely horrific. Um, and yeah, I think that this stuff really, really needs to get out there because, um, I'll just give a little anecdote because I know you're wearing a Blue Jays hat right now. Um, so I'm sure you've noticed at all of our sporting events, you know, these, these military, uh, shows where they'll bring out, uh, some kind of general or whoever, some yeah, kind the of Sunday um, salute, they call it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's painful. Um, and then, you know, of course everyone is expected to stand up and clap super loud for, you know, whatever. And so, um, I guess before I used to do that just because I was like, uh, whatever, but I would roll my eyes. And then, you know, more recently, <laughs> like in recent years, I'm just like, no, I, I can't, I cannot do this. Right. So I just sit in my chair. Um, and my mom, you know, uh, God bless her. She's, uh, you know, she's a sweet woman. She did just, she's not very politically involved. Right. So, um, she kind of gave me some side eye and was just like, oh, well, you know, is, that's fairly disrespectful and, you know, it, our troops, because I, I was making the argument that, well, I'm not going to stand for imperialism or aggression or whatever. Um, and she was just like, oh, well, like our troops are peacekeepers. Like it's not, you know, it's not these people's fault. Like they're the peacekeepers, right? Um, and it's just such an ingrained, like the story is so powerful. And I'm like, do you have any idea what that means? Do you have any idea what it means and what we've done as peacekeepers globally? No, nobody does. <laughs> nobody has any any idea um so yeah i just i honestly just want to hand my book to her and be like this is why i will not stand for the sunday salute yeah <laughs> it's so games. crazy it runs so deep i mean you know i'm sure yeah. that my mother would probably have this similar reaction you know i know lots of people do like it it's and I mean, you know, an added bit of irony to this is that for the last 30 years, Canada has almost contributed nothing to peacekeeping uh, missions. Like there's no, yeah. there's not even a pretense anymore that Canada's doing peacekeeping. Canada does war now, you know, aggressive war. Um, and yet the peacekeeping thing, I mean, you would ask people about Afghanistan and they would say, oh yeah, we were, we were like peacekeepers there, right? It's like, no, at no point. At no point were they even pretending that that was about peacekeeping. That was an aggressive war. It was an occupation. Mm -hmm. um, but that, I mean, I, you know, and I think it's important. The fact that it runs so deep and the fact that people are so committed to the idea, you know, and, and it's no disrespect to your mom or my mom, you know, both, I'm sure, sweet people in their own regard, right? But, I mean, this is how ideology works. Ideology operates on the level, you know, that is almost... Um, uh, it's not even conscious. It's subconscious. It's just something that sort of seeps into our general understanding of the world. And for Canadians, you know, I think there's been there's been a real emotional need, you know, ideological emotional need to convince ourselves right from the start that we were good, that what we were doing was good. We weren't doing anything bad. This isn't colonialism. You know, we're not... We're, yes, these indigenous children are going to these schools, but it's to help them. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not trying to destroy them. We're trying to help them become better like we are. You know, I mean, white supremacy has, it doesn't have to be burning crosses and KKK hoods. Like white supremacy can have this 
appearance of something benevolent somehow. I mean, it's obviously not. No, no serious person would think that it was, but, yeah. <laughs> but it can present itself in a way that almost plausibly seems like, no, 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 we're just trying to help. Look, you people are backwards. You don't understand, and we're going to help you, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. I mean, I watched those, those Heritage Minutes. I watched every single Heritage Minute, and it's insane how many of them basically reproduce that idea that there's some group of people somewhere in the world, usually not white, who don't get it, who haven't figured it out, and Canada's going to help them benevolently out of the goodness of its heart. You know, Canada's going to try to help these people. And so, yeah, the peacekeeping thing is part of that. And it's so deeply, deeply, we're so invested, I think, in the idea. Um, You know, it assuages our guilt about, I think, the reality of the world. Mm Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. I think there is this real need to be like, oh, well, we're, we're not the Americans, right? Like we're not the U.S. There's this huge need to try and distance ourselves from the Americans and kind of carve out what we actually are. Right. So everything that we are is kind of in opposition to them. Like, oh, well, we're, we are the um, we're polite, not like those Yanks, you know, we're uh, <laughs> whatever. We're the peacekeepers, not the aggressors. Um but uh, but yeah, let, let's move on to the war on terror now and how that changed how Canada engaged in the world. Um, so you mentioned Af- Afghanistan. So how did Canada, Canada participate there and in Iraq, etc.? Because yeah, I think there is still an idea um, that many Canadians have that even in those wars, we were just peacekeepers. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so strange because those were explicitly, you know, aggressive wars. The war in Afghanistan starts a couple months after 9-11, and there's no ambiguity about the fact that it's um, retribution for for 9-11, you know, despite the fact that uh, none of the 9-11, you know, um, hijackers were from Afghanistan, and, um, you know, no one in Afghanistan had really any role in it. The Afghan government didn't have any, you know, direct role in, not that they, you know, and it's not that... They were a particularly nice government. You know, you don't have to be a Taliban defender to say, well, they didn't do 9-11, uh, which many people said, of course, at the time. But but nevertheless, um, you know, the United States launched its war and Canada joined, although the prime minister didn't actually admit to it until several months after. But Canada joined right from the start. Um, and, you know, I think there's a big shift there. And of course, that, you know, that quickly follows the war in Iraq, which had even less to do with 9-11, and and the broader war on terror, which expands to, you know, many countries in in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, And, you know, there's a a real shift there. And I think, you know, in the broad scope of of world history, part of what's happening is that um, with the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, the 90s are this kind of strange moment where, you know, American centrality and and North American, because Canada attaches itself to U.S. power, didn't really know how to justify itself, didn't really have a way of, you know, because for, you know, the better part of the century, they had sort of said, look, you know, it's not that we want to dominate the world, but we have to because if we don't, the Soviets will, right? We're saving the world from communism. Well, okay, so the Soviet Union falls and then then it all gets super weird and the 90s are very weird and foreign (laughs) policy interventions in the 90s um, are very unpopular, you know, like people at home don't like, I mean, there was Somalia we talked about, but they didn't like the war in Yugoslavia either, you know, and, um, and, and it was a terrible war that, again, terrible things were done. But at home, the fact that people 
sort of opposed it or weren't into it was a bit of a concern. The war on terror solves that in a way, right? The war on terror, there's this obvious emotional you know, thing around 9-11, um, and it's this new opportunity now to assert uh, U.S. global power, um, especially in a place like Iraq, where there's obviously a lot of oil. Um, and, and Canada just sort of uh, attaches itself to that, not because Canada is weak, not because Canada had no choice, you know, this is, a, I think, a real serious, like another myth, you know, that it's more of a left wing myth, unfortunately. Um, but the, the myth, you know, the Linda McQuaig sort of um, holding the bully's coat thing, where we say as Canadians, the Americans do these awful things. We don't want to do them, but we have no choice. The Americans force us to do this. Um, and that's just not that's just not accurate. I actually spend, I think, quite a bit of energy in the book trying to take that apart and, and show that that's not true. Canada joins the war on terror because it's extremely profitable for Canadian capital. And that's really what the war on terror is about. Um, you know, it the, the colonial logic is there. The colonial ideology is there. It's very present, especially, you know, Canada in Afghanistan in particular, it's very, very present. And I'll talk about that in a second. But, but the core of it is um, the profits that stand to be made from destroying countries, um, destroying their infrastructure, uh, destroying their uh, nationalized industries, destroying even their their privatized industries that they own, and then and then rebuilding them um, yourself. You know, um, Nortel, Nortel, a Canadian company, got a massive contract in Iraq to rebuild their entire telecommunications network. They already had one but it was destroyed by the war, right? And then mm-hmm. Nortel gets this big contract. And um, and here I, I draw a lot from the work of Jerome Clausen, um, you know, who's really meticulously kind of put all of this together. And, and Greg Albo as well talks about this a lot. Um, the way in which the Canadian state realizes that its, its profits, the profits of the business elite in Canada are tied to the U.S. empire. Mm-hmm. So by choice, Canada works with projects of U.S. imperialism so that Canadian capital will get some of the rewards, right? Canada and Canadian capital got a ton of rewards for participating in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and elsewhere. Um, So, you know, a huge amount of profit was made out of wars that killed, you know, in Afghanistan at least 500,000 people in Iraq as much as a million people. Uh, It completely devastated the country. I mean, even those numbers are sort of you know, not quite, don't quite capture it because the level of destruction uh, and and the suffering that came from just the destruction of infrastructure, houses, you know, um, sanitation systems, energy production systems, um, you know, the 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 scale of the trauma um, inflicted on on people, the fear every time you hear the sound of a drone that like you know that it might be bombing a wedding and, and it might be your wedding or your friend's wedding. I mean, the, just like the mm-hmm. deep traumatizing of these societies, um, you know, for the profits of SNC-Lavalin or, you know, SRK Consulting or Gold Corp. Mm-hmm. It's really, really kind of awful stuff. And, and, and then to tie it back together with this colonial piece, you know, um, there's, a, there's a terrible book, <laughs> terrible, terrible book by Christy Blatchford. It's called 15 Days, and it's Christy Blatchford, this, you know, former um, 
National Post columnist, right wing, big fan of Don Cherry. Um, but she, she wrote this book where she, she's embedded with the troops. You know, it's one of those like, you know, I'm going to spend some time with the troops and find out what it's really like. And she doesn't realize, or maybe she does, I don't know, but she doesn't present it critically. She just sort of presents what the troops are saying. But I read it and, and I was like, oh my God, I can't even believe that you're saying this out loud and that you're reprinting this. The stuff, the quotes that I pull from that book, you know, there's a soldier who's describing being in Afghanistan and says, it's like walking with people who are 2000 years in the past. It's like, I'm in the pages of National Geographic. Wow. I mean, that is so racist. It's it's so incredibly colonial and racist and mm-hmm. and 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 obviously false, but not not just because it's racist. I mean, false in the sense that like the claim is that this is a place that has no history, that has no development internally, that has no there's no internal logic to its own progressive development as a, as a nation, that it's stuck, it's fixed in the past, that the only way this country could ever be modern is for us to destroy it and rebuild it. And that's not only racist, but also inaccurate, because Afghanistan has a long, complicated history, and the West played a really central role in undermining its own progressive development in the 1960s and 70s, and and funding the Mujahideen who invade that country, provoke a massive and serious war, draw in the Soviet Union that leads to the emergence of the Taliban. Oh, and by the way, that Mujahideen group that we funded, uh, well, one of its leaders was Osama bin Laden, who launches 9-11. You know, I mean, it's like yeah. the hubris and, and the consequences of yeah. these actions, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think Canada's war on terror has been... There's no, there's no moment that is its most shameful moment, because they're all quite shameful, but certainly the the... Anti has been upped in terms of how much destruction Canada can dole out to the rest of the world uh, in this era. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and didn't, I mean, the whole premise of going into Afghanistan, right, was because Osama bin Laden was there. And didn't the Taliban actually say to the U.S., like, okay, well, we'll just, like, we'll give you Osama bin Laden. And they were like, no, 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 uh, we must come in. <laughs> we must come yeah. invade. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. And, and you can add to it too that the the like the stated motivation for the war changes constantly over the over the 14 years or so of the occupation. It starts out it's about Osama but then it's like no this is actually about um you know uh rebuilding the country. This is about establishing, you know, a stable democracy. And then and then for a long time of course it was about saving women. Mm-hmm. Oh no, this war is so that we can so that girls can go to school. You know, this mobilization of, you know, liberal colonial feminism, um, you know, of course, it's nonsense. And, and and even if it's like, even if at some level that were true, even if you accepted the idea that Canada is just trying to help Afghan women, um, you're not helping. This isn't helping. This is not making that happen. And you're crazy to think that this is helping because what in what in practice is happening is that the occupation is strengthening the most conservative, the most reactionary groups and forces in Afghanistan, you know, who are saying, we always told you that the West was, was you know, depraved. We always told you that the West was bad. You should have listened to us before. Listen to us now. Join our war against, you know, these invaders. So Afghanistan has, has become a more dangerous and difficult place 
uh, certainly compared to the 60s and 70s um, for women and, and for many people um, because of the occupation. So even if you believe Canada's, I think, ludicrous claims about why it was there, it has failed uh, on those claims as well or on those terms as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and weren't Canadian um, forces caught like either torturing Afghan Afghanis or transferring Afghan people to uh, the police to be tortured? Yeah, both actually. And whatnot. Yeah. I guess it's something we should have also mentioned with the peacekeeper uh, section was that in all of these like peacekeeping wars or just wherever our troops go abroad, they are assaulting, um, raping, sexually assaulting uh, civilians, you know, um, and often murdering them as well. Uh, but it's often just that's kind of the code of code of conduct. This really kind of like, yeah, imperialist patriarchy kind of, um, you know. Yeah, I found a terrible, upsetting book about. Um sexual violence uh in in un peacekeeping missions it wasn't specific to canada it was about all of them Mm. and i you know it's strange that it's the only one i could find there's been very little written about this even though it's um it's prevalent um and and it you know it is really really upsetting maybe that's part of the reason sometimes people don't want to look into it but um yeah it's been prevalent in these missions and you know maybe a bit of a side tangent from what we're talking about but a really interesting finding in this book was that Um, you know, they were looking at peacekeeping interventions in Africa and peacekeepers from various countries, including like, you know, white Western countries and African countries. And the cases, uh, you know, the documented cases of sexual violence by peacekeepers um, was astronomically higher from the white Western countries. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when Botswana sends peacekeepers, uh, you know, to Sudan, for instance, uh, there are few, if any, cases of sexual violence. Um, but when Belgium, you know, or, or France or the United States or Canada does, um, there is always, in every case, and, and, you know, all the way back to the Korean War, uh, in all of these cases, and, and again, all the way back to colonialism, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. A, it's a piece of the story that's uncomfortable and, and, and unpleasant to talk about, but but sexual violence has always been part of colonialism. It's part of the assertion of white patriarchal power. And it is, and it's very evident in Canada's colonial history. Um, I pull quotes from Northwest, the first Northwest, Northwest Mounted Police officers, their diaries of their trip out West, their first uh, mission out there. And I mean, it's, it's pretty disgusting to listen to the way they talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... You know, whether it's in 1870 at Red River or 1885 at Batoche, uh, sexual violence is used by Canadian uh, and you know, soldiers and police. Uh, and then again in the Boer War and then again in the Korean War and then again in you know, Congo and Somalia and, you know, one after another. Um, so, yeah, this stuff follow. And to, to pull it together, one last sort of thought on this, you know. Shireen Razak has an argument about torture and violence where she says that in many ways it's about the assertion of power. It's about, you know, you do the torture, you do the violence in order to assert that you're part of the civilized group of nations that is allowed to do this. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that rings quite true of the Canadian experience, at least in a lot of these cases. But Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It's yeah. not, not pleasant listening. <laughs> <sighs> no. Yeah. But it is just completely telling that that is a tactic used, you know, that this is just like white patriarchal power being imposed on the rest of the world um, through the most horrific kinds of violence. So uh, I guess moving on, when we, when we think about, you know, regime change operations, we typically, again, fault the US or the CIA. Um, but I guess we've mentioned a few regime change operations already that Canada has been part of, like uh, Lumumba and Mobutu and uh, in Iraq with Saddam. Um, but I guess uh, talk a bit more about how Canada has been involved in, in other regime change operations, especially more recently, and why, <laughs> why we're doing yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, <clears throat> you know, I mean, it's usually a preferred method of, uh, you know, if, if you don't, want to do a full-scale invasion, you know, find some sort of lighter way of getting what you want in other countries. And, and Canada has been involved in that for a long time um, in, in many different ways. And the more recent cases, you know, one that is particularly, I guess, um, meaningful to me because I've done a lot of work on it was uh, in Honduras. The, um, <clears throat> the government of Honduras was in the 2000s, I guess I would say like a liberal at best, maybe social democratic left-ish, uh, but not radical by any means. And <clears throat> what um, emerges in that period is an activist movement that wants to um, improve the conditions of life for poor people, for working people, for indigenous people, for women, um, and builds a kind of collective movement. Um, it was an organized social movement in that country that kind of comes together, coalesces in the early 2000s. And under the presidency of Manuel Celaya, who's elected in 2005, uh, they finally have a president who, I wouldn't say he listens, but he's receptive to the demands of the movement. Um, it's not because he's some great hero, right? I mean, I think it's important to actually emphasize that, the, you know, the, the power of this movement comes from the popular classes. It comes from this organized movement, not because some heroic guy in a cowboy hat you know, came down and saved them. He did wear a cowboy hat and people liked it, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't <laughs> the issue. Um, he was receptive though, in, in so far as his political fortunes became increasingly tied to the support of this movement. So, you know, he gradually starts um, reforming the state. And I mean, these are minor reforms, you know, increase to the minimum wage, um, rewriting the mining laws of the country so that they're not quite so abusive because they were abusive in, in so far as Canadian, mostly Canadian companies would be allowed to poison the environment, treat the workers with disrespect and pay no taxes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he's gradually making some minor shifts here, but even that was deemed unacceptable by, uh, by the West. Um, and so the West teams up, but here I mean mostly Canada and the U.S., uh, they team up with the far right in Honduras, and they overthrow Manuel Celaya's government in 2009. Um, Canada didn't physically even do anything in this. You know, it's different from the case of Haiti, where Canadian troops actually were in the country to help kidnap the president uh, in 2004. But in 2009, there's no Canadian soldiers on the ground. All the dirty work is being done by Hondurans. Um, but Canada plays 
you know, this tune over the next six months, well, really over the next 12 years, but especially in the, in the ensuing six months where they immediately say, oh, you know, uh, we don't want to rush to any judgment here. You know, we're really sorry to see that there's a crisis in Honduras and we hope it gets resolved uh, peacefully. You know, we, we call on all parties to show restraint. <laughs> and I remember because I, you know, I was there and I was working in Honduras at the time and you know, the idea that this was like all parties need to show restraint. It's like, sorry, one side is is the military that just kidnapped the president and enforced martial law. And the other side is like the people who are just like, hey, we voted for that guy, bring him back. This isn't all parties need to show <laughs> restraint time, you know? Mm-hmm. This is, you need to, you know, restore the president time. So, you know, there is one example. And, and of course, the why does Canada support it? Which, by the way, they did support over the next... Six months and then 12 years in a variety of different ways, Canada made sure that um, that right-wing military group stayed in power. They are still. Honduras is a dictatorship now governed still by that same faction and has been ever since. Um, And it's because it's really good for business. Um, Canadian mining companies are all over that country. They're by far the dominant country in the mining sector. And one of the first things that the new government did was uh, actually they did change the mining laws to make them more favorable to Canadian capital. The Canadian garment manufacturing company, Gildan, um, has a number of sweatshops there. Most of Gildan's operations are in Haiti and Honduras, you know, the two poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere and both places where Canada has participated in the overthrow of governments that were trying to help working people. You know, and it's mostly women that work in those Gildan factories. They're extremely physically taxing, um, they're worked very, very hard. They're given few breaks. Uh, when they develop, uh, which they invariably do develop, uh, physical injuries from the work, um, they are not allowed to go to a regular doctor. They are told to go to the company doctor. These are these are sort of industrial parks. So there's a doctor, there's a little clinic on site. Uh, and I actually interviewed somebody who was one of those doctors, and he was like, yeah, I was just told, give them some painkillers and send them back to work. Oof. You know, so these are these are really you know, exploitative, horrific places. When people tried to form a union at one of them, uh, they were, they were, they faced violence. The company hired, you know, organized criminal thugs to, to intimidate them. Um, and of course, this is what Canada was trying to support in, in supporting a right-wing dictatorship in that country in supporting regime change in that country. It was to ensure that the mining companies, that Gildan, that the tourist industry in the North, uh, would be, would have no interference from a government that would listen to people who were saying, we would like some interference here, please. We would like to be allowed to form unions. We would like to be allowed to protect our communities from the toxic shit that they're pumping out of their mine into our river. You know, we would like to have access to the land that's guaranteed to us, uh, you know, for fishing rights on the North Coast. All of these things we deserve. And of course, Canada doesn't care uh, because its priority is the needs of business. Um, So, you know, many of the things that Canada does in Honduras have their reflections, again, right here in Canada, in Canada's relations with Indigenous people and and resource extraction here. Um, So, you know, I use that example. It's one of many. um, Oops, sorry, cat. Uh, It's one of many. uh, There's (laughs) it's kicking my cat. But... (laughs) Um, yeah, I guess that's, thank you, Kat. That was a good segue into something else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, And I think that's another thing that people don't 
know about Canada is that our mining sector is so humongous. Like we make up like 75% of the world's uh, mining companies and that what we're doing abroad is so disastrous. And as you said, that does have resonance with what's going on in Canada with like the man camps and missing and, and murdered indigenous women. Um, Cause that's uh, definitely something that happens around all of our mining operations globally as well, um, as well as environmental destruction. But yeah, I mean, just basically all of the regime change operations that the U.S. is involved in or are are trying to pull off in like like in Venezuela and whatnot, we're we're just as involved. Um, And it's just kind of yeah, Venezuela, so Bolivia. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, and and there's even I mean, what's interesting too, and to come back to that that claim that Canada just follows the U.S. there's times where Canada is actually the the much more aggressive party with respect to um, mm. these dictatorships. I mean, it's not quite regime change; it's the reverse of it. It's protecting a um, you know a dictatorship. But you know, there's the case of Samosa in Nicaragua in the nineteen late nineteen forties. Uh, the U.S. didn't really want to. The the U.S. would have been perfectly willing to accept uh, a succession of the government of Nicaragua as long as it was still pro American, pro capital, because. Uh, the dictator, Anastasio Somoza, was embarrassing. He was a Nazi. He literally had pictures of Hitler and Mussolini on his desk. And this is after World War II. So, you know, there was a popular movement. There was clearly something was afoot. And the Americans were happy to let Somoza fall. But Canada, because it had such significant mining interests, uh, and and that those were based on a relationship with Somoza, um, Canada actually steps in to protect Samosa against the wishes of the United States. The Americans were ready to cut mm-hmm. ties, um, you know, and, and Canada gets in there and makes sure it was a complicated story, but they funneled him some weapons and airplanes and so on and managed to keep Samosa in power. And they, his family stayed in power until the 1980s. So, you know, mm-hmm. Canada really made sure that Nicaragua had another 40 years of dictatorship. Um yeah, Canada's often the aggressor, you know, despite our self-perception. We're we're really we're really out there. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It's horrifying. So, I guess speaking of fascism, uh you point out that Canada has flirted with fascism historically and now we're seeing another rise of the far right. Um so can you speak a bit to the the history of Canada and Canadians supporting fascism and the material conditions today that are precipitating its return? Yeah, I mean, I think the history of fascism and and the role it plays in in the world, like I think, is often really misunderstood. Um, you know, it gets it gets boiled down into some very oversimplistic story about like you know the Nazis and the Nazis were evil and bad, um, and we beat them because we're the good guys. Um, and you know that that narrative around World War II, um, you know, it's so popular. I think because unlike a lot of the other conflicts, whether it's World War I or Vietnam or Korea, World War II seemed to be so obvious. And the narrative seemed to be so simple. You know, I mean, my dad liked World War II stories. You know, like he, he watched a lot of World War II documentaries. He was into it. And I think the reason, you know, despite the fact that, he, you know, his generation, his age, you know, the Vietnam War would have been the more obvious thing that would have been part of his moment. But he always watched the shows about World War II. Why? I think it's because he liked the idea of a simple story where we were the good guys. Um, and I, I mean, and fair enough. I mean, I wish, I wish it was all simple stories of us being the good guys. That would be a lot more fun than 
goddamn book that I wrote. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, unfortunately, like, uh, the, the, this is... Um, so even World War II is more complicated than, than we think. And, um, you know, fascism generally arises as a reaction to pushes for change. You know, fascism is... You know, there's, a, there's a reason reactionary became a term in, in that era. And it's because fascism was a reaction to the rise of the left. The left emerges in, I mean, it, it had been bubbling and growing for a long time, but it really, really emerges around the First World War. This horrific crisis of capitalism, uh, you know, that ends in millions of people, working people dying in trenches, uh, and everyone is so angry and so, and can see through the whole system. And it, it prompts a massive boost uh, in, in, you know, the number of people who join left-wing movements. And there's a revolution in Russia, obviously, but there's also one in Germany, two in Germany. There's a, a revolution in Hungary. There's a revolution, um, or there's an almost revolution in Spain. There's an almost revolution in Italy. I mean, the left is really, really powerful. And the right, fascism, grows as a response to that. I mean, Mussolini explicitly comes to power in Italy on the premise that he will destroy the growing left, that he will break the unions that keep going on strike and disrupting the flow of capital. Um, you know, Hitler's ideology is anti-communist at its heart. Even the anti-Semitism that is so deeply woven into Nazi ideology is actually interspersed with anti-communism. Hitler's sort of presentation of things is that the, uh, you know, Germany has been undermined by the communists who are Jewish. Mm. He explicitly makes this connection between communism and the Jews. And so while we, you know, we typically remember the anti-Semitism of Nazism, we often forget that it was deeply interwoven with anti-communism. Uh, Hitler's first enemies were uh, the communists. They're the first people that he he liquidates when he comes to power. And then the trade unions, you know, are the leaders of the trade unions come swiftly after, um, you know, the foolish leftists that got sucked into the Nazi party are quickly liquidated. Uh, and then the Soviet Union is his primary target, so much so that the West supported Hitler. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's incredible to me that that has been so successfully written out of our historical memory. Mm. But the West explicitly supported Hitler. The Canadian Prime Minister goes to Berlin and meets with him in 1937. I mean, by this point, Jews are already being rounded up and sent into what become camps. And, and by the way, this is widely known. It's not like Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King didn't know about it. There had been protests in Toronto Jews in Toronto demonstrating against the Canadian government, demanding some kind of intervention to deal with the problem in Europe, demanding in particular that Jews be allowed to escape Europe and come to Canada as refugees, which Canada refuses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because most of the leaders of Canada at the time were deeply anti-Semitic themselves, including the prime minister, who goes and meets with Hitler, uh, and they talk about, you know, Hitler tells him all about the problems that the Jews have caused you know, they're in our movie theaters and, and this and that. And, and Prime Minister King is receptive. There's no, I mean, I read his diaries. It was harrowing reading, but I went through all of his diaries for that two or three week period. And he doesn't raise any objection to that at all. Uh, in fact, the primary purpose of King's meeting with 
uh, Hitler was to communicate to Hitler, focus on the communists. Keep your eye on the Soviet Union. As long as you go east, you know, you have no quarrel with us. If you turn your attention to Western Europe, if you turn your attention on Britain, then there's going to be a problem. But as long as you're heading that way, like, it's fine. And, you know, I think in many ways this this really captures the liberal um, sort of, you know, what we think of as liberal or centrist uh, approach to fascism, which is that, you know, they don't want to be the fascist. They don't want to do or say the horrible thing. But if there's any possibility of a powerful left-wing movement that could seriously threaten their authority and their power and their prestige, they're perfectly happy to let the fascists do that dirty work. I mean, that's essentially what King was saying. Go ahead. We don't like the communists either, and we're afraid of that ideology too. So go. Do what you need to do. Don't tell us. Just go do it. But don't interfere with us. Don't interfere with what we're doing. So, you know, I think that changes for me. That changes profoundly my understanding of what World War II was and what it was about. Um, yeah, eventually, of course, the West ends up fighting against Hitler. I mean, that's clear. Um, but it does so, and you can read Winston Churchill on this. He's very clear about it. You know, the West changes its position when it realizes that Hitler is ambitious enough to want to be the center of capitalism, that Hitler wants Germany to replace Britain slash the United States as the central capitalist power. Now, that's where he goes too far. That's the moment. I mean, how insane is that? Mm-hmm. That of all the things Hitler does, the, the thing that really pushes us over the edge is when he threatens the centrality of British imperial power. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I mean, that is explicitly what it is. And Churchill recognizes that before, you know, even some of the others. And that's part of the reason there's this mystique about Churchill. I mean, good God. That's a whole other story I won't get into. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, this changes, I think, how we understand World War II. And I think it tells us a lot about um, the West's general and liberalism's general relationship to fascism and also Canada's. Yeah, and then they also kind of uh, uh, wrote out the fact that the Soviet Union played such a major role in defeating Hitler, right? It, it was all the West that did that as well. So just very interesting. And then you also write that, you know, they supported, you know, fascist Japan <laughs> um, yeah. and, you know, other other fascist powers as well. So yeah, all of them. Just I mean, very, Canada, very interesting. Canada had a very close relationship with fascist Japan to the extent that, um, you know, Canada was even selling materials that were going into Japanese weapons um, as Japan was attacking um, not not just uh, some of the islands around Japan, but Korea, Manchuria, even mainland China. When Japan, fascist Japan, attacks mainland China, um, the Canadian ambassador says, hey, you know, we got to understand here, Japan is just trying to put its neighbor into better shape. I mean, Canada runs interference, political and diplomatic interference on behalf of Japan, as it's, you know, the the attack on the city of Nanjing, you know, widely known and remembered, is just a horrific, horrific thing. Hundreds of thousands of people killed in that city in that attack. And that's just one attack. I mean, the way that the Japanese fascist administration treated people in Korea and, and China, not very well known in the West, but, but you know, absolutely horrific stuff. And, and Canada was fully on side with it. Um, Canada was fully on side with fascist Spain. Um, I shouldn't say that. No, I should be more precise. They weren't fully on side with fascist Spain. But when Hitler asks Prime Minister King to maintain strict non-involvement and non-intervention in Spain, King agrees. And so 
um, Spain falls to the fascists with Hitler's support. Hitler's air force is bombing Spanish cities, but the West does nothing. Now, of course, individual Canadians, uh, to their to their great credit, um, you know, a couple thousand almost went to Spain in you know individually and fought against fascism there. Before it was cool to fight against fascism, they went. You know, these were, um, you know, working class people, you know, veterans, homeless men for the most part, veterans of the Regina riots and the Ottawa Trek who went and fought against fascism in Spain. And they lost mm. because they were fighting against not just Franco, but also Hitler and Mussolini. And they had no support from Canada. Canada called them scum, in fact. That's what they were called in Parliament. Uh, and they were treated as criminals. So, you know, all of this, and I, you know, I think all of this is probably especially relevant for us to think about now, because we're living in a moment where fascism is again on the rise. And we already see, you know, we already see Canada, uh, the Canadian state that is, um, lining up beside many of the newly emerging fascist powers, you know, in Ukraine, in India, uh, in Brazil, uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, you could call Saudi Arabia fascist and and Canada's, you know, funding them, arming them, working with them. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, oh, we didn't even talk about Israel, really. <laughs> um, right. Of and, course. Uh, you, <laughs> and how much uh, Canada is has supported their colonial invasion and occupation. But that has been extremely significant. Um, and yeah, you mentioned Ukraine. You talked about Krista Freeland, who may become our prime minister, or she's kind of, it seems like she's being groomed to be the next prime minister of Canada. And uh, yeah, she's she has very close ties to the far right in Ukraine. Her grandfather was a literal Nazi, <laughs> Nazi propagandist, uh, which she covered up and said was just Russian propaganda, which is hilarious. So pretty concerning stuff. Um, yeah. And then, of course, it came, it came out like recently that there's so many like actual Nazis or white supremacists in our military and uh, our police forces as well, I believe. But yeah, I mean, that's and that's yeah. like, that's going to happen. I mean, that's part of this moment that we're living mm -hmm. in now in the 2020s, yeah. which, you know, I mean, we're in, we're in a crisis of capitalism. That's clear. The pandemic was a sort of spark, you know, that kind of has ignited it even further. But but we've been in, we've been on the verge of a deep crisis of capitalism for, you know, 20 years or so. And um, as that happens, um, you're going to see, we're going to see um, a growing left. We're going to see more and more people joining left wing uh, parties, movements, protests, demonstrations, and so on. We're already seeing that. I mean, that's already happening in the last mm -hmm. four or five years. And as that happens, so too, then you get the rise of the right, which, of course, we're also seeing. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be fewer and fewer, uh, moderate centrist liberals in the coming decade. Uh, that position right. has, has really lost its legitimacy and, and continues to every single day, every day that Joe Biden, you know, fails to do anything progressive, um, but also fails to, to, you know, say something super racist, he's failing the left and the right, you know, and obviously I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not sympathetic to his failing the right, but but every time Justin Trudeau, you know, cries on TV about the way indigenous people were treated, you know, um, but then make sure that the RCMP have the right to shoot protesters at Wet'suwet'en if they're blocking uh, the construction mm -hmm. of a pipeline. You know, what he's doing is eroding any kind of real sustainable support for that central sort of liberal thing. And people are either going to be 
you know, pulled to the left by the fact that he's attacking protesters, or they're going to be pulled to the right by the fact that he would dare to cry about Indigenous people. And that's what we're going to get. We're going to get this increasing polarization. And, you know, it's obviously happening in the US, but it's happening here too. And it's going to, it's going to be intense. I mean, I, it's a scary time, I think, in many respects to be, mm-hmm. you know, living through this. It's hard to know exactly what it's going to look like, but we will all have to make pretty serious political choices, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, uh, uh, to that end, um, you conclude with the need to decolonize Canada and develop a socialist or communist alternative. Um, so I guess, where are you focusing your energy right now with respect to building that alternative? Yeah, oh, I guess just it, it, in this question, horrible right? apocalyptic setting that we're in. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that question is always the dagger, right? What are you doing about this? Nothing. <laughs> um. <laughs> No, I I don't mean to call you a person. I just mean, like, where do you think personally um, that we should be kind of uh, organized? I mean, I guess I guess that's also a a big question that has a million answers because it's like, well, diversity of tactics, like whatever, wherever you are, do something. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I mean, I think, you know, I take your calling me out quite. uh, I think it's an appropriate calling out. I mean, I think we we do actually have to be kind of saying to ourselves, like, what are we doing? And yeah, diversity of tactics stuff, you know, I mean, I I sort of grew up in that milieu, but I mean, it also kind of failed, you know, the kind of the everything from the Battle of Seattle to the G20, that kind of milieu of of diversity of tactics, you know, let's all kind of just loosely organize and build these kind of loose movements of, I mean, it didn't didn't do much. It didn't it didn't really succeed. It certainly didn't win in the big picture. So, I mean, I, I guess my answer is like. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, um, and I'm frustrated by the fact that I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I have some ideas about where that I think need to guide the work we do. I mean, as I say in the book, I think that any serious, you know, um, progressive project in Canada has to have decolonization at the center of it. I don't think uh, I I have no respect for any left wing movement in Canada that doesn't have decolonization as a central pillar. Um, mm-hmm. And so at some level, that that means any work that is done has to be led in part uh, by Indigenous struggles. Uh, you know, whether the Mi'kmaq in, in Nova Scotia right now or, you know, the blockades at Wet'suwet'en or, or any other, uh, you know, kind of of those particular struggles, um, that stuff has to be central because Canada itself is the problem at some level. You know, the Canadian colonial state and the colonial imposition is in some ways, our, our primary um, enemy, I guess. Uh, it's a strange word to use, but I, I would say in many respects, it's the right one. So decolonization has to be central. But, you know, how you get there and, and what you build sort of along with that decolonization is complicated. And the left, I mean, everyone on the left complains about the left. So I hate reproducing that dynamic, but the left in Canada is a mess. It's as messed up as it's been in a really long time. And there is increasing interest, I think. My perception is that there is growing interest in in left alternatives and left-wing projects, but the socialist and communist movements that exist, parties that exist in Canada, are in various degrees of disarray. You know, the labor movement is has... And I should say, all of these movements and, and parties have great people in them like great people in them trying to do great work. Like none of this is a attack on any 
people involved. But I mean, I think it's fair to say that in general, the labor movement is is very uh, conservative. Um, you know, it's very oriented to the center at best, you know, um, and and certainly is resistant to radical uh, radical possibilities. You know, they spend a lot of their resources on the NDP, uh, which is very clearly, you know, just trying to be the new liberal party and failing at that, you know. Um, but, you know, the NDP, the Green Party as well, are both, you know, center and center right political parties. So those aren't places of interest for me. We need movements that can build real opposition to the Canadian state, the Canadian colonial state and the things that it's doing. Um, but we haven't got that right now. So, yeah, I hope I haven't just offended like everyone that's listening. I don't I don't mean any <laughs> offense to anyone here. I, you know, I'm, I'm really coming from just a place of, of, you know, disillusionment and frustration. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's definitely a, a humongous project that can definitely feel very, uh, you know, disempowering or lead to a lot of doomerism. Um, but I think you're definitely right that uh, the land back movement needs to be front and center and that that is a, a critical part um, of building this alternative that a lot of I think a lot of settler leftists don't give enough they don't realize the import of it. Um, like they, they do in, in general, like they're, they're broadly like, oh yes, I'm for decolonization, but they kind of see that as maybe like an afterthought. Um, whereas I, I agree that I think it is foundational because as you said, yeah, this settler capitalism, like the colonial imposition of the settler state um, is absolutely <laughs> at the core of the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I just made a video, actually it's coming out uh, it'll be out once this <laughs> this podcast is out called Living the Revolution, where I kind of talk about, um, you know, dual power and that kind of thing. And I think that's that's definitely where I want to uh, put my energy. But uh, but yeah, I guess it's a it's a big question. And I understand your um, disillusionment and frustration. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. It, it really is. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, land back and decolonization, that stuff really is it's central because it is so central to what Canada is. So if you're, you know, if you're, mm -hmm. if your primary impediment right now, you know, to having a, a post-capitalist society here is the Canadian state, which I think it is, um, mm -hmm. colonialism is central to the Canadian state. So opposing colonialism is a fundamental prerequisite of anything else that, that is done. And so I, it's like that, but that's the easy part. It's knowing, it's knowing how, you know, and it's, and it's understanding also that, it's not like all indigenous groups and movements have the same approach to decolonization, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I think there's this kind of really not helpful thing that happens. It's a, it's a kind of a liberal thing that where, you know, it's sort of, it's like, it's the, I'm doing the clapping thing. It's the tweet with claps where it's like, listen to, you know, and listen to so-and-so people. Right. And it's like, well, listen to indigenous people. Well, yes, of course. I mean, that's, that's so obvious. But it can also, that can be so oversimplistic that it actually reproduces a kind of ridiculous racism and colonialism because it implies that all indigenous people agree and that they all have somehow the same platform for revolution, you know, and, and the same ideas for a post-capitalist society, which they don't. I mean, we have to engage in good faith with the fact that there are divisions and divides between all of the different groups of people that we want to be part of our movement, whether it's like whether we're talking about the working class, indigenous people, racialized people, uh, you know, women, um, trans people, you know, whatever category, whatever group of people we're, we're sort of talking with, and, and some of us, of course, are part of, 
it's not like that group of people all agree <laughs> and all have the same position. So, so we need to both sort of center those groups of people, center those movements, have them be front and center so it isn't just a bunch of white guys running the show as usual. But at the same time, we all have to be building, I think, political movements that can, that can actually process the debates that exist within these communities, within our communities of resistance, uh, and, and where we can actually take positions. Um, and I know that's I probably sounds a little bit sort of vague and theoretical and abstract. It's partly because I haven't really, you know, thought this out super clearly, but, but it is also in reaction to the idea that we just have to, you know, well, you know, here's a group of people that are protesting, join them, follow them, listen to them, raise up their voices. No, it's not always that simple, you know, because different groups of people protest for different reasons and they're not always aligned. And we do need to know what we're fighting for. We do need to identify, for me at least, we need to identify that capitalism is a problem. It's the problem in many respects. And we have to have a plan for how to confront capital and how to confront the capitalist state and how to win. You know, we have to have a plan for how to win these struggles so that it isn't just a handful of people try to do something and then they all get arrested or, or killed, you know, or, or whatever. Like, we have to have real goals, real principles, real plans for how to, uh, you know, fight these things and win. And yeah, I mean, it's hard right now because those structures don't exist here. They exist in other places, though. And, and we can, you know, we can take lessons, whether from, you know, from India, millions of communists struggling in India or in the Philippines or, you know, or, or what's happened recently in Bolivia, uh, you know, even Venezuela, there's a lot of really positive lessons to take from the experience there. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's a matter of trying to kind of, um, I guess, pull all of these things together and, and find things to build, at least, you know, hopefully at some point we can start doing that. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, that's a somewhat hopeful uh, place to end. Uh, so just thank you so much for this conversation. It was just so amazing to have you on. Um, I will link your book in the description box below. It's called Canada in the World, uh, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination. So everyone, please pick that up and check it out. It is such an important read. Um, before we go, do you want to shout out maybe where people can find you online, unless you don't want them to find you online? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After what I just said, yeah, yeah, do not. <laughs> Do not look me up. Um, you know, I'll give the, there's a Twitter account for the book that I'll give. It's, uh, it's at Canada in the world, although uh, it's, it's W-R-L-D because, because I ran up against my limit for characters, but it's, so it's Canada at Canada in the world, at Canada in the W-R-L-D. And it's uh, an account that I run for the book and I, I share little threads and vignettes from uh, the book. So that would be a good place. And from there, ultimately, you'll probably be able to find me if you really want to send me that that hate for what I just said at the end there. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, I'll link that in the description box as well. Um, so yeah, otherwise, just thank you so much for coming on. This was really wonderful. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I'm glad we finally got around to doing this. We talked about it for a long time. So I'm glad we finally did it. Mm -hmm.